Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Even after a continuing spate of senseless mass shootings, state and federal lawmakers can't muster the political will to make any significant restrictions on buying or carrying firearms. But tribes set their own rules and restrictions outside of the Second Amendment. Many tribes prohibit guns on reservations, even if you're just driving through. We'll get an idea of how far some tribes are willing to take their ability to regulate guns coming up right after the news. National Native News, I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A stretch of highway that runs through the Blackfeet Nation in northwest Montana is now named after the late Chief Earl Old Person. Aaron Bolton reports Old Person was a storied cultural and political leader for the Blackfeet Nation. Old Person, who died in 2021, served as the Blackfeet traditional chief and sat on the nation's tribal council for decades. But he also played a major role nationally, serving as the president of the National Congress of American Indians from 1969 to 1971. He also helped pass federal legislation like the American Indian Religious Freedom Act of 1978, which ensured access to traditional sites and the freedom to worship through ceremonies. A bill that will memorialize Old Person was signed into law on Tuesday. A stretch of U.S. Highway 89, which runs through the heart of the Blackfeet Reservation, will now be known as Chief Earl Old Person Memorial Highway. For National Native News, I'm Aaron Bolton. On Tuesday, you heard about Jemez Pueblo's efforts to secure water rights for the tribe's health and way of life. KUNR's Caleb Radel has more on why that work is more urgent than ever. Traditionally, the Pueblo's growing season runs from April to October, but it often gets cut short by water shortages, to the point that some don't even want to plant anymore. This climate change has really made us even think harder. Uh, what can we do? How can we make these things work? That's Michael Toledo Jr. He's a three-term governor and a longtime negotiator on the tribal water team. And he's a farmer who says the lack of water hurt his crops badly last year. That's the way it goes sometimes. And it's year by year, but it's our way of life. We got to take care of our own land and, and, and you know, take care of what we have. The federal government has set aside $2.5 billion to settle disputes over tribal water rights. So far, a number of tribes have already reached settlements. That includes the Navajo Nation in New Mexico, Arizona, and Utah, the Nez Perce Tribe in Idaho, and the Southern Ute Tribe in Colorado. Last fall, several lawmakers from New Mexico introduced bills to approve Pueblo water settlements. For Jemez, it would create a $290 million trust fund for water-related projects and confirm the tribe's rights to more than 6,000 acre-feet per year. That equals enough water to cover 6,000 acres of land one foot deep. U.S. Senator Martin Heinrich spoke about the proposal before the Senate Committee on Indian Affairs. The settlements will provide critically needed funding for water infrastructure to develop and distribute new water to Pueblo homes and businesses. But the Jemez Pueblo is still waiting for its water rights to be approved. And Congress has been newly divided after Republicans took control of the House. Here's Paul S. Chinana, a five-term Pueblo governor and member of the tribal water team. I just hope uh, that we uh, get a settlement. It's always an upstream battle. 
We're not there yet. Meanwhile, on the banks of the Jemez River, Peter Madalena is thinking beyond the water the Pueblo needs for its fields this year. It's just part of our lives, and I think it's very important that we continue the livelihood, not just for us, for, but for our grandkids and their kids way down the line. That's why he's glad to see the surrounding mountains covered in snow. He's praying for plenty of rainfall this spring and for their water rights to be secured sooner than later. For National Native News, I'm Kayla Bradle. This story is supported by the Water Desk at the University of Colorado Boulder. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the Gathering of Nations Powwow, a live event taking place April 27th, 28th, and 29th on the powwow grounds of Expo New Mexico featuring song, dance, trader's market, horse parade, and more. Tickets available at gatheringofnations.com and at the gates. Support by Sonoski Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sonoski Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. There's a stalemate on any new state or federal gun restrictions, even as mass shootings occur on a regular basis. But many tribes have strict laws about firearm possession on reservations. Violating those laws could mean the tribe confiscates your guns for good. One factor driving those laws is the disproportionate number of Native Americans who die from gun violence and suicide. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reported 2020 was the highest number of gun deaths on record for Native Americans, more than double the number from 20 years ago. Proposed federal legislation would make it easier for tribal citizens to acquire guns by using only their tribal ID. In this hour, we'll talk about gun laws among different tribes. Are you familiar with your tribal gun laws? Give us a call and join our discussion. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-99-NATIVE. You can even join the conversation on our social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter at one 99 native Joining us now from Albuquerque, New Mexico, is Ann Tweedy. She's a professor at the University of South Dakota School of Law. Ann, welcome back to Native America Calling. Thank you so much, Sean. Joining us from Davis, California, is Catherine Flurry. She's a professor of law at UC Davis. Catherine, welcome to Native America Calling as well. Thank you so much. And joining us from Santa Fe, New Mexico, is Joe Talachi. He's the owner and founder of Indigenous Arms. He's from Pewaukee Pueblo, and he's also a former governor of the Pueblo of Pewaukee. Joe, welcome to Native America Calling. Thank you. Uh, good to be a part of it. 
You bet. Well, Anne, I'd like to begin with you, and let's talk a, a little bit of history here, legal history. And despite what we know about current support for Second Amendment rights, the right to keep and bear arms didn't always equally apply to everyone in this country. What's the legal history regarding Native Americans and, and access to firearms? Uh, I would say it's really difficult. Um, you had federal, the federal government and states and colonial governments terrified of tribes, thinking that they were these attackers. And so you had, going back to 1865, um, proclamations saying that hostile Indians couldn't um, be sold arms, and so there were punishments for anybody that sold arms to them. And then um, 1939 to 1979, there were, were terrible provisions in the Code of Federal, federal Regulations saying that hostile and uncivilized tribes couldn't be sold arms and that the superintendent needed to um, approve any sale to Native Americans um, and that it had to be for a clearly established lawful purpose. So there was just a violation of um, Native Americans' rights to bear arms historically and no no attention, I would say, to um their rights compared to, to others, just the disregard of their rights. Mm -hmm. And now as we move forward into more contemporary times, uh, what is the, the status of, of most tribal governments uh, with regard to gun laws? Do most tribes just pretty much adhere to, to the same laws as the states in which they reside? Or is it, is it common for tribes to have specific gun laws that apply only on their tribal lands? Um, tribes tend to have their own laws, and there is some information that tribes have been chilled um, in, in enacting their own laws because um, because of the controversial nature of, of the laws. Um, but um, so, so there, there may be fewer tribal laws in place than, you might, than tribes may, might prefer to have, but um, tribes are not bound by the Second Amendment, um, so they can enact more restrictive laws than are allowed um, otherwise, and they're not bound by, by state laws um, at, towards their own members, and so they can, can, react, they can enact laws that differ from um, what the surrounding state has. But there are enforcement difficulties if they're trying to enact laws that cover everybody on the reservation, and so that makes it difficult, I think, to enact a law that fully complies with whatever their policy might be, because then it will be, if it's a restrictive law, it will be difficult to enforce against non-tribal members or non-Native people, um, depending on whether it's civil or criminal. And if it's a liberal law, it may lead to more gun violence. And so there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, of, it's very fraught, I would say, even though tribes have a great deal of freedom under the law to enact whatever laws they might want. It sounds like uh, for most of these tribes, they enact gun laws that are uh, more restrictive uh, than the states within where their tribal boundaries uh, reside in. But do you know of any examples of tribes that have uh, gun laws that are less restrictive uh, than their surrounding states? I don't think I've, I've run into that. I, I mean, we do have some tribes with the right to bear arms in their constitution, but it, 
it tends to be um, explicitly explicitly limited um, where it's a right a reasonable right to bear arms or right to bear arms in a peaceful manner. Um, so actually Navajo is one of those and then Huron Potawatomi and Little River Band um, all have a right to bear arms but but it's qualified in in the wording and so that seems to suggest that um, there's not going to be like a just a blanket right to, to bear arms with no restrictions or that restrictions could be put into place but I know that tribes that um, have been historically hunters um, they consider the right to have arms for hunting to be very important so I wouldn't make a blanket statement that um, tribes would would want to have strong restrictions across the board and like um, some tribes have safe safe storage laws like Swinomish um, but theirs is more limited than some of the state safe storage laws out there um, so it's definitely a mix but I think you're right there there are uh, oftentimes restrictions in tribal law. Let's also talk about the state of Oklahoma. And of course, there's so much attention now with regard to the McGirt decision and Oklahoma tribes uh, and their jurisdictional uh, parameters. And uh, will that impact uh, guns in any way? I mean, do you see any possible legal confrontation coming down the road with regard to, to tribes and, uh, and gun laws? That's a great question. So we have um, McGirt and that McGirt saying that the Creek Reservation, of course, still exists. And then we have Castro Huerta saying that the um, state can prosecute a non-Indian who commits a crime against an Indian. Um, so I guess um, I could imagine, you know, some sort of case coming up if, if the Creek Nation ha enacted strict gun laws um, and could be perhaps used as a tool by, by Oklahoma because we do have the governor trying to poke any holes in McGirt that, that he can. And so um, I could see that being held up, um, unfortunately, as, as some sort of parade of horribles if, if you did have a really strict gun law enacted by the Creek, Creek Nation. Um, that's, a, that's a really interesting question. Hmm. Let's go ahead and bring Catherine into the conversation now. And Catherine, here, here we are talking about these issues that pertain to, to gun policies on tribal reservations in general. And also, you know, there's the whole issue of tribal sovereignty. And what do we need to know about sovereignty in the context of gun laws and policies uh, regarding firearms on tribal lands? Yeah, well, I mean, as uh, Anne was saying, um, you know, in theory, tribal sovereignty means that tribes are outside the Constitution. The Second Amendment doesn't apply to them. And given that, um, you know, Congress has actually uh, required tribes to observe certain constitutional rights through statute, but notably the Second Amendment was left out of that. Um, so this is something that, in theory, is core aspect of tribal sovereignty. Tribes should be able to set whatever policy they want. Um, but I think that a big problem for tribes is the lack of ability to apply laws uniformly through tribal land um, and tribal territory, because um, especially in the criminal context, but also to some extent in the 
civil context, um, it's very difficult for tribes to apply their laws, to enforce their laws against non-members, um, especially non-Indians. And I think that's a real problem with something like guns. Um, you know, states have enough difficulty with, even states with restrictive gun laws have guns smuggled across the border all the time. It's hard to control what goes on in nearby states uh, because we don't have, you know, hard borders in the United States. Um, and this is an even bigger problem for tribes because it's not just um, guns coming in from neighboring jurisdictions, but it's on a reservation itself. Um, they're going to, there's going to be conduct that tribes just aren't allowed to, um, you know, enforce their law to combat. So there are a lot of real practical problems for tribes, even though in theory, um, tribal sovereignty should include the right to define whatever policy the tribe wants with regard to guns. We're going to have to take a short break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to learn more about uh, why the Second Amendment was left out uh, of these dealings with tribes. Uh, but anybody listening right now that would like to chime in on our conversation, give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Tell us about the gun laws where you live, and if you live on tribal lands, what's your thought? Do you think it's important for a tribe to have different gun laws uh, than the surrounding state? And if so, would you like to see gun laws that are, are more restrictive or perhaps less restrictive? Excuse me, less restrictive. Either way, uh, we welcome all callers on our show. We'd love to hear your thoughts, your ideas, your comments, your questions. Again, that number. 1-800-996-2848. That's the number to call. Phone lines are open. 1-800-996-2848. Stay with us. We're going to talk a lot more about tribal gun laws here over the next 35 minutes or so. So hope you enjoy the conversation. Cannabis laws continue to evolve state by state. Tribes are taking the opportunity to either capitalize on loosening restrictions or push the envelope of what the surrounding states allow. We'll check in with the cannabis industry from a tribal perspective, coming up on the next Native America Calling. I hastily skips the arhus to melt. Pin heads mem suti lich choska eps hoop nelt wicked. Yo anunt lutzel hoop ill insure kids now dot gov. Tchellum till centers for Medicare and Medicaid services. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about gun laws in Indian country. Are you up to speed on your tribe's laws pertaining to firearms? Give us a call and tell us how your tribe's gun laws differ from the state where you reside. We're at 1-800-996-2848. Are you required to register a handgun in your state and with your tribe? Call us, let us know. 1-800-99-NATIVE. On the line now is Catherine Flory, uh, professor of law at UC Davis. And Catherine, before break, you were talking uh, about how the Second Amendment uh, has been left out of some recent negotiations uh, with tribes regarding constitutional rights. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more and tell us why uh, the Second Amendment uh, does not apply even in contemporary times with, with tribal, uh, tribal laws? Well, 
Yeah, sure. So this actually dates back a few decades, um, although it, there are still sort of consequences going on today. Uh, but tribes are not subject to the Constitution. They're not governments that are part of constitutional restrictions. Uh, but in the 1960s, Congress decided um, to require tribes to um, comply with, with some constitutional restrictions. Um, in those conversations, uh, the issue of gun rights and the Second Amendment didn't really come up. Um, and it's not entirely clear why that was true. Uh, part of it might have been these kind of exaggerated historical fears, you know, still having resonance today. Um, but also it, it partly reflected the fact, I think, that the Second Amendment was just not that much of – it didn't have the same legal force that it does today generally. The Supreme Court has magnified the Second Amendment right to bear arms, turned it into an individual right in recent decades, which it was not thought to be before. Um, so in any event, when the Indian Civil Rights Act was passed, um, it did not contain any provisions related to the right to bear arms, and that left tribes free, um, as they were before, to regulate guns um, in any way they might choose. Um, it's interesting, though, that, you know, I think whereas this was not such a flashpoint in terms of a national issue at that time, um, it has become a lot more so in recent years in, in the non-tribal context. And um, in, interestingly, when the uh, reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act came up um, a couple of years ago, um, that, among other provisions, gives tribes certain powers to prosecute non-Indian domestic and dating violence offenders. Um, that provision has been, been really important to the tribes who've been able to take advantage of it. So the reauthorization was, um, you know, an extremely important way to allow tribes to continue to fight these domestic violence issues. Um, that was held up, actually, because of a proposed um, expansion of um, sort of protections, uh, ways to take people's guns away um, to include not just uh, uh, domestic violence offenders who are married to the victim, uh, but also those who are, who are simply dating the victim, who are partners of the victim um, without uh, formal marriage. So uh, that's an example, I think, of sort of contemporary debates about guns and the degree to which it's such a hot button issue uh, politically, you know, non-tribally, um, interfering with tribes' ability to get the protections that they need. Alrighty. So yes, VAWA um, does uh, place restrictions uh, specifically on who can can own uh, a firearm in some cases uh, on reservations. Correct? Yes. Um, it, it, uh, it it has um, you know certain certain provisions. They're not uh, you know they're not not limited to, to tribes, uh, but it does have uh, some provision regarding circumstances under which you can restrict domestic violence offenders from owning firearms. Um, and then sort of unrelated, I mean, somewhat related, but, but not specifically firearm related, um, it restored 
tribe's sovereign powers in a, a few fairly narrow but important instances to uh, prosecute non-Indian domestic violence offenders. And uh, those two things sort of got tangled up, I think, in the, the reauthorization. And um, ultimately, a deal was struck that, that did allow uh, the provisions regarding tribal criminal authority to be renewed, but that uh, removed the proposed changes that would have basically toughened the firearms provisions. Thank you, Catherine, uh, for those additional insights. And let's go ahead and bring Joe into the conversation now. Again, he is the owner and founder of Indigenous Arms. And uh, Joe, as a tribal citizen, also as a former governor there at the Pueblo of Pewaukee, uh, does the Pueblo have any laws uh, about guns and who can own them uh, that are different from the state of New Mexico? Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that they were any different. However, they are uh, somewhat more restrictive. Uh, you know, the tribal citizens themselves are required to register their firearms. Um, however, there is no jurisdiction over non-tribal individuals. And then uh, uh, tribes such as ourselves, or we're, I guess you could say, checkerboarded uh, with uh, uh, native and uh, privately owned uh, uh, land, it's definitely a challenge. Um, we have asserted civil jurisdiction over non-tribal individuals with regards to firearms, but we cannot restrict them um, or, or take their firearms away during uh, specific situations. Of course, there is VAWA, um, which does apply. But um, as far as our, our own specific laws, there, there's um, you know restrictions on where you can shoot. Um, but as far as purchasing, the only requirement within the, uh, the, the Pueblo of Pewaukee is uh, uh, to register them. So each firearm has to be registered within a uh, tribal household. Now, I've driven uh, by uh, Indigenous Arms many times there on that road uh, right by Pewaukee Pueblo. I've seen it. So as, as a licensed firearm dealer there on tribal lands, uh, anybody can come in there, native, non-native, and is there any different protocols when, when selling a firearm to perhaps a tribal member or another Native person, as opposed to a non-Native person who just wants to buy a gun from Indigenous Arms? Uh, no, there are no uh, specific register. I mean, uh, uh, restrictions uh, against uh, either or. Everyone's treated equally. Um, the We are within the exterior boundaries of the Pueblo of Pewaukee. However, we are on uh, private land within the exterior boundaries, so the uh, uh, jurisdictional issues may be a little bit different. Okay. All right. Thanks for that clarification. So you're not directly there on tribal lands, exterior lands. Uh, what about background checks, Joe? What's required uh, by the state of New Mexico? And then there, are there any type of additional tribal background checks that you have to comply with? So as far as background checks, everyone is required to do a background check when they come in to purchase any firearm or transfer any firearm. Transfer being going from one person to another. But there are no uh, additional restrictions or uh, you know backgrounds done for native versus non-native, uh, everyone is, is uh, uh, required to go through that background. So the background consists of um, sending information out to uh, the FBI uh, to do a brief background. Essentially, they pull up the record, see if there's, uh, they're good to go, um, and haven't uh, uh, violated any of the restrictions with regards to gun ownership. Um, and at that time, they're either given a, a proceed uh, immediately or a delay, uh, and during the delay, um, the uh, FFL or federal firearms license being us, 
Uh, we have uh, we can hold the gun for three up to three days, and after three days, they are allowed to pick it up if no denial has has come from the FBI. Now, during the circumstance of a denial, um, and that can happen to anyone, native, non-native, uh, they are absolutely restricted from purchasing a firearm at that time. All right. Now, Joe, I, I mean, obviously, you know, you've got these uh, these policies in place, but what about just if somebody, if you ever had somebody come into your store and uh, you just get a really bad feeling, maybe they're they're acting really odd and maybe the background checks come out okay and like on paper, everything looks good for the sale, but you just don't feel right about selling somebody a firearm for just whatever reason. Has that ever happened to you? And if so, what do you do? Absolutely, it has happened. Um, as a small business owner, you know we do reserve the right to to not uh, sell uh, sell that individual a, a firearm, and we have had that happen uh, in certain circumstances where we, uh, the employees, or I, have not had a good feeling and have just said, "Look, man, I, I you know I don't think uh, you know we're the right place for you to purchase a firearm." Um, unfortunately, we can't help you today, but we appreciate your patronage and. Uh, uh, you know, if there's anything else we could help you with, you know, please let us know. But if, you know, we, we do have to have a conscious and, and uh, you know, moral and ethical um, standards with regards to selling someone a firearm. So that's a, a value uh, that we all carry within our shop. Now, New Mexico is a concealed carry state. Uh, do those same concealed carry laws and permits, do they apply there? Is there a reciprocity there on Pueblo lands? And also, how do you deal with uh, concealed carry there at your shop? So we do not, uh, the, uh, there is no reciprocity rules with regards to my tribe specifically. Each tribe may have their own uh, specific laws uh, or ordinances regarding that. Um, but unlike states, there is no reciprocity um, you know, policies uh, regarding tribal lands. So uh, with regards to um, uh, concealed carry permits, we're also a state certified uh, concealed carry, um, or I'm a licensed uh, concealed carry instructor through the state of New Mexico. And so our teachings on, you know, tribal land uh, and concealed carry is basically don't, unless you know the the laws within the, uh, within the specific tribe itself. As far as I know, I, I'm not too too familiar with many of the laws around New Mexico and, and some of the tribes, but I do not know of any that have uh, concealed carry specific laws. Um, however, I, I mean, I, I think it would be a good idea um, because of the uh, response time of law enforcement and, the, and a, a regular citizen being able to defend themselves in a critical situation. Okay. Now, Joe, I know nowadays, uh, you know, the last time I went into a gun store, there were just there were a lot of, you know, handguns and, and kind of what we refer to as assault rifles, you know, these kind of um, the black stocks and, you know, the kind of tactical looking weapons. But I remember when I was a kid, you'd go into a gun shop and it was it was hunting rifles, you know, wooden stocks and scopes and things like that. And I noticed that they've really changed a lot in recent years. But you still sell a lot of hunting rifles, right? Absolutely. That's primarily what we do is hunting and, and uh, you know, more, more steered towards the uh, outdoor sports. You know, and, and, you know, back then they did have semi-automatic rifles, you know, uh, 30 out sixes, 308s. Um, however, lately the uh, AR-15 platform has become a very popular uh, uh, firearm, um, but it's, it's no uh, more deadly than, you know, say the semi-automatics uh, that were sold you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Um, in fact, it's more restrictive now, whereas you used to be able to go into a shop and buy a, uh, 
you know, Thompson, um, uh, Thompson submachine gun, you can no longer do that. You, you cannot buy anything that's full auto. You could buy Tommy guns fully auto back in the day. Like what? What years are we talking about? I, I believe back in you know right right uh, at the close of uh, the uh, uh, World War II um, and before that. So some of these laws were were the federal uh, firearms laws were passed during you know kind of that mob and prohibition area, uh, where mm-hmm. a, a normal citizen can could acquire whatever firearm they wanted, up to and including. Um, true assault rifles, meaning assault rifle, meaning uh, full auto or three round burst capable uh, and such. So those those laws were enacted. Um, uh, I can't remember what year it was, uh, but to restrict uh, uh, the purchase of those firearms. Okay. Yeah. So I'm having these visions now of, of you know, these old time uh, G men out there, right? Raiding these stills and with their hats and their, and their Tommy guns and things like that. I want to go back to, to Catherine on that. And, and Catherine, you know, it, it's interesting here. What, what Joe describes is some of these uh, laws dating back to, to the prohibition era and things like that. And uh, do you know of any uh, parallels there between that era of, of gun policy and how they may or may not have impacted tribal laws with regard to guns? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, um, I think that it was an era where, um, you know, tribes found it harder to express their sovereignty. Um, there were more uh, federal restrictions on uh, tribe members that were not lifted as, as um, I believe, until the 1970s. So, um, you know, I think that um, it, it was kind of a strange mix of factors. On the one hand, guns being very much a, a part of U.S. culture. Um, on the other, you know, just less um, understanding of uh, the needs of tribes to to kind of be sovereign entities and, and set their own policy and, and also just, you know, kind of a legacy of, um, you know, fears that um, initially led, um, you, you know, kind of attempts to, to control gun ownership by tribe members, members in general. All righty. And uh, let's go back to you now. And anything you'd like to add regarding tribal gun laws at this point in our conversation? Or, you know, how have laws evolved over time in regard to, to government regulation on, on reservations? I think that um, I want to second Catherine's point that, you know, we had these paternalistic laws with respect to tribes from the, the federal government. Um, and so we don't have the self-determination era starting, which uh, which is a federal policy that started around 1970, saying that tribes were to be encouraged in their self-government efforts. And so, I think before that, um, we did have we did have an earlier period um, with the Indian Reorganization Act in the 30s, where there was some encouragement to tribes that they to to um, engage in self-government, and not that they weren't. Um, also engaging in self-government, you know, even if it wasn't supported by federal policy, I think that was very much happening, but probably was less official. Uh, you wouldn't necessarily be able to find a, a law to point to um, for most tribes. But um, in the 30s, it was very much like a boilerplate, adopt these constitutions that we've written from the federal government side to the tribe. And so 
In the 70s, you see the federal government for the first time saying tribes, you know, you should be governing yourselves. And so then tribes had more freedom to be overtly um, passing laws. And so I I think the the laws would have started to develop more after that. So like in the 80s and 90s, like um, in my earlier research, I did find a gun ban from the absentee Shawnee that was dated 1994. And by the time I was looking at it, there was a different law in place. And so that had been abolished at some point um, after 1994. But um, I think that the the tribal laws would have started to develop later, at least the ones that we could point to, you know, in in a code book um, would have started to develop like after sometime after the 1970s. Thank you, Anne. Gun laws uh, on tribal lands. Uh, if you live in a community that has specific tribal gun laws, uh, we'd sure like to hear from you today on our show. Uh, let us know your thoughts on our conversation. 1-800-996-2848. That's our number. We'll be right back after a short break. Support for this program provided by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium the collective spirit and unifying voice of 37 tribal colleges and universities. For over 45 years, AHEC has worked to ensure that tribal sovereignty is recognized and respected and that tribal colleges and universities are included in this nation's higher education system. Information on a tribal college or university near you at AIHEC.org. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're focusing on gun laws in Indian country today. Tribes are not required to adhere to the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. Still plenty of time to join our conversation today. How are your tribe's gun laws different from your state of residence? We'd really like to to know that question and answer to that. We're at 1-800-996-2848 or just 1-800-99-NATIVE. That'll work too. Uh, we did a little background check here of our own, uh, our producers, and turns out fully automatic machine guns were outlawed by the National Firearms Act, the NFA, back in 1934. So that goes back about 90 years. So I think for most of us uh, in our lifetimes, at least, uh, fully automatic uh, firearms like machine guns and such have been illegal uh, on the federal level. And uh, we've got Joe Talachi on the line. He's a uh, former governor of Pewaukee Pueblo. He's also the owner and founder of Indigenous Arms. And Joe, you know, we're having this conversation today. We're talking all about guns and gun laws and gun policies. But of course, uh, guns don't fire without ammunition. And uh, what types of policies or laws do you have to adhere to with regard to, to bullet sales and uh, ammunition of various uh, types? Uh, with regards to uh, ammunition, you know, um, uh, no uh, pistol uh, ammunition is allowed uh, to be sold to anyone below the age of 21, uh, which adheres by federal law. Uh, 21 years of age or younger are not allowed to purchase uh, pistols whatsoever. Um, so the same thing applies to uh, ammunition. At the age of 18, individuals are allowed uh, to uh, purchase um uh, purchase, uh, uh, you know, hunting ammo or uh, rifle ammo or shotgun ammo, but they're anyone above, below the age of 21 is absolutely restricted from purchasing uh, handgun ammo or handguns. Okay. And what about firing guns? Because I know 
New Mexico in general, it, it's one of those states where it's just no big deal to see somebody just kind of pull over on the side of the road and, you know, uh, take a gun and do a little target practice and things like that. But what really specifically, what are the laws? I mean, where are you supposed to, to be shooting, even target practice or something like that? So, I mean, there is uh, uh, specific areas that are dedicated, you know, more shooting ranges that uh, we we ask that people utilize, um, you know, However, in New Mexico, there is a lot of public land. Um, even on the tribes, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of land that people utilize uh, to go out and shoot. Um, however, that does create, you know, kind of, uh, you know, environmental hazards because of lead involved. And, um, you know, the, uh, um, uh, the trash and stuff that's left behind. But there are no uh, specific laws within the state of New Mexico from, uh, you know, uh, firing in public land as long as it's, you know, a certain distance from any livable dwelling or occupied dwelling, as far as I know. Um, and I kind of wanted to hop back, you know, with the frustrating part about um, restricting firearms. You know, natives were restricted from firearms for the same reason the Second Amendment was passed. Um, it's kind of a double standard that has been or, or was applied, um, meaning that the Second Amendment applied to all citizens other than the race uh, that they were trying to tyrannize and oppress at, the, at that specific time. So, you know, that's part of the reason why, as a Native American uh, gun store owner, um, you know, we, we named it Indigenous Arms, you know, kind of in a very not a somewhat passive aggressive name to say, hey, you know, look, we're still here and we're still, um, you know, um, uh, able to, de to defend ourselves, but also to hunt and, and do what we, we believe in freely, uh, follow our traditions of being outdoorsmen and women and, and um, you know, uh, practicing that right, you know. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely, Joe. Let's go to the phones now. We have Josie, who is listening on KUNM in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hello, Josie. Uh, Sophie. Uh, hi. Um, uh, my, my question is actually for the, 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 the law people, and, and, and that would be uh, for BIA schools. Like when you go on a BIA school, uh, the, when you go on campus, you're you're automatically on federal land, and so like the how the laws interrelate or or overlap within tribal, um, you know you 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 know they're drug free, they're usually quite, they have assigned weapons free, um, and sometimes you are screened. Uh, All right, I think we lost uh, Sosi there, but he was talking a little bit about. Uh, gun laws there and policies specifically like on, on BIA uh, managed properties as well as schools and things like that. Let's go ahead and take another caller now. We have Theodora who is listening up in Mandarin, North Dakota on KMHA. Hello, Theodora. Hi. Um, I missed the info shared at the first 15 minutes of this program on guns, uh, but I'm very glad to hear that you are airing this um, with all the repeated uh, mass gun shootings in uh, the the United States. I'm um, very disappointed to hear that uh, the proposed legislation uh, to, is to bring that gun madness to Indian country. I understand that uh, this proposed legislation is is brought by the new Alaskan Rep. Uh, Mary uh, Patola, I believe her name is, and an Alaskan uh, Native legislature. Um, since it's not widely shared on Fort Berthold Indian Reservation, I'm not up to date on the, any uh, tribal gun laws on Fort Berthold. I believe the state of North Dakota requires a quick background check 
before buying a gun outside of the reservation boundaries. However, um, the long time and uh, still ongoing illegal drug trafficking of fentanyl and heroin that's targeting tribal members on Fort Bertha will only be, I believe, exacerbated if more guns are encouraged here. Those uh, the illegal drug trafficking started around 2010, or at least 13 years ago, if not longer. And the extent of the drug trafficking is not publicly available to here on Fort Berthold, but we know from the news media that drug traffickers from uh, Detroit, Michigan, are repeatedly bringing in uh, the heroin and fentanyl. And I would think that tribal police would about encouraging more weapons with all the fentanyl and heroin flowing through Fort Berthold. Um, thank you for airing this program, and I'll hang up and listen. Thank you. Well, Theodora, we, we sure thank you for giving us a great call there, uh, a great take there with regard to, to some of the challenges that you folks are dealing with up there uh, on the Fort Berthold Reservation in North Dakota. And uh, you mentioned uh, this whole uh, proposed uh, legislation regarding tribal ID for guns uh, that was introduced uh, by Dusty Johnson from South Dakota. And Catherine, uh, can you expand on that? What do we know specifically at this point about this uh, proposed legislation regarding uh, tribal IDs uh, for gun purchases? Um, well, I think the idea is, you know, just um, to, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of people who have the political belief that um, guns should be easier to obtain, um, you know, sort of want to um, allow that to be true for tribal members as well. And uh, I think part of the issue is that just uh, tribes have gotten caught up to some extent in the broader U.S. debate about firearms and, uh, you know, sort of distinct issues like the ones that, that your caller alluded to, you, you know, tribes have some, some particular problems that might make uh, gun ownership um, and the ability to, to bring guns onto reservations just sort of a different um, issue because of the special challenges that tribes face. Um, but, uh, you know, I think there is often this problem that gun policy is not shaped with the specific needs of tribes in mind, um, and, and some of these concerns may get lost in the broader conversation. All righty. Joe, uh, as a gun dealer yourself, what's your thought on that with regard to uh, tribal IDs as uh, adequate uh, identification for gun purchases? Well, I mean, you know, as a former tribal leader, I'm always going to weigh on, on the side of tribal sovereignty and, you know, um, the, the strength of that and their ability to uh, regulate their own, uh, their own people. So, I mean, uh, you know, when it comes to gun purchases, you know, I do think that there has to be uh, account some, there has to be accountability. So, you know, one of my thoughts was, is that, you know, creating, um, you know, policy that requires at least two forms of tribal ID. Um, and as far as I know, um, you know, um, well, what's frustrating is that it, it, it cannot be used as a second form of identification. It has to be a state identity or, or a state entity or a federal entity, uh, and that could be just a bill, right? Um, you know, a water bill, a city bill, something like that, um, whereas, you know, tribal identification cannot be used as a, um, as a second form of ID. So, 
you know, my thought is is that it should be applied to the same standard uh, as any other, uh, you know, uh, uh, sovereign entities um, standard. You know, so you know, I, I think that it, uh, you know, on the side of sovereignty, I believe that it should be, um, you know, a, a respected form of identification. Um, I think one of the challenges is the, um, you know, the background doesn't cover, you know, the uh, backgrounds within specific tribal governments, uh, meaning, you know, if an individual commits a crime uh, that is not a felony within the exterior boundaries of a, uh, a tribe and is taken at tribal, uh, tribal court, you know, that background might not reflect what is uh, indicated in their background through the tribal court. So with regards to identification, you know, I think it should be respected the same way that any other government entity's um, identification or proof of residence should be respected. All righty. Thank you, Joe. Let's go back to the phones. Earlier, we had a caller, uh, Sosi, who was calling in from Albuquerque listening on KUNM, and unfortunately, we lost Sosi. Sosi, you're back on the air. Thank you. Hi there. Um, my, my question was, uh, 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 for the law people, was, was that uh, there's, there's BIE schools on almost every res- reservation, and when you go into school, they're, 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 you know, they're drug-free, uh, uh, weapons-free. And you, you sometimes you do go through a screening. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering how how uh, so and, and and the the usually the tribes and the schools uh, will will have an agreement uh, that you know for for the land. So you're actually on federal land, and so like uh, I'm wondering if, if they know how how the um, laws overlap or interrelate in those situations. All righty. Great question, Sosie. And let's go ahead and have Catherine respond to that. Catherine, uh, what do we know about that with regard to, you know, these federal lands, uh, perhaps a BIA school, weapon-free? How does that correlate to, to state law as well as perhaps tribal gun laws? Yeah, so, I mean, the federal government does have authority both on land that it owns and it's also, um, you know, exercised the power to um, make whatever rules at once, uh, you know, with respect to Indian country generally. Um, so that is something the U.S. can do. It's a power that it's exercised, uh, you know, especially on, on land that's actually owned by the federal government. Um, this would generally not be an area where states would have any say at all. And the degree to which the federal government does is really just a matter of, of choice. And I think, you know, there's uh, hopefully an effort to kind of coordinate federal policies with tribal policies and not, uh, you know, just kind of make rules unilaterally. But, you know, that sort of uh, depends on, on the particular circumstances, whether that actually happens. Well, thank you, Catherine. Uh, let's take another caller now. We have Jolene, uh, Jolene Holgate, and uh, she is the director from the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women. Uh, Jolene, thank you for for calling in today, and uh, please help us out here. Where does gun violence stand uh, with regard to this larger issue of domestic violence uh, in our Native communities? Thank you for that question, and just want to thank. I want to say I learned a lot from uh, from this conversation, and um, I think it also really factors into how we are approaching uh, gun violence within our tribal communities as well. Um, in the Southwest, uh, much of the domestic violence and intimate partner violence that is taking place is actually happening within our communities. And 
Um, but from what we know um, nationally, if uh, the likelihood of a woman being murdered increases by 500% when their partner owns a gun. And the most common weapon used against women actually are firearms. Um, in respect to Native women, the lethal threat a gun poses in the home of a, a perpetrator who is causing the abuse is especially severe given that, you know, guns are involved in over a third to approximately 35% of uh, homicides um, that are happening against Native women. Um, we also recognize that, you know, Alaska, which has uh, the majority of tribal nations um, of the 50 states, for seven years in a row, uh, ranked first in the nation for the rate of women murdered uh, uh, murdered by their male counterparts and involved a gun. So um, what we're seeing is that gun violence has certainly been um, present in our tribal communities, certainly has been taking place since uh, the onset of colonization, especially when we didn't have access to firearms um, when those uh, events were happening. And... We also understand that violence against women has increased significantly um, where guns is now a part of that, that dynamic and intimate partner relationship. Um, but some of the helpful solutions uh, I think that we have seen uh, since 2019, uh, New Mexico State uh, now has a law that prohibits abusers um, from having access to any firearms if they are under a protective, uh, protective order or restraining order. Um, which is very helpful to survivors. And some information and awareness for folks is that protection orders and restraining orders are very helpful for survivors, especially if their abusers may have access to firearms, and that New Mexico does recognize the full faith and credit laws, meaning that uh, jurisdictions, jurisdictions in New Mexico, whether that's tribal, state, uh, will honor those protection and restraining orders. So it's really important to um, have that awareness and to let survivors know, or those who might be um, in violent situations, that uh, regardless of the jurisdictions, that they're able to still have those same protections. Jolene, thank you for calling in. Again, Jolene Holgate, uh, she's Danae, and she's from the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women. Folks, we are out of time now. Uh, I want to thank our, our three guests today, Joe Talachi, Catherine Flory, and Ann Tweedy for what's been a really timely conversation about gun laws on tribal lands. Join us tomorrow, April 20th, for an update on the tribal cannabis industry. Hope you'll tune in. I'm Sean Spruce. Support by the American Indian College Fund. The American Indian College Fund provides millions of dollars of scholarships to thousands of Native students every year. Tribal citizens of every age and experience are eligible. The deadline for applications is May 31st, and you can find everything you need to apply at collegefund.org. That's collegefund.org, or by phone at 800-766-FUND. Education is the answer. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian Country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian Country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Amerind.com. That's A M E R I N D.com.
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.